You know, at most churches, when there's someone other than the senior pastor preaching, he's said to be filling the pulpit. Um, you can't fill Ken's pulpit. The best you can hope for is to occupy the stool for a little while. Today's sermon is the wrap-up, the final sermon in our summer-long series on 1 Peter. And so if you want to turn to 1 Peter 5, that's where we'll be when I actually start here. Um, and the format for this morning's sermon is a little different. It's what Pastor Ken calls a, a nunchuck sermon, named after the Oriental weapon. So I'm going to teach out of uh, 1 Peter 5 for a little while, and then we'll have the worship team come back up for a short one. And then Aaron Wells is going to come up and, uh, and give us some concluding remarks on 1 Peter and, and put a bow on the whole thing. Um, my name is Rick Gerhardt. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my wife Dawn and my, our four kids and I have been involved in Antioch ever since the beginning. And I have the privilege of serving with a great group of men as one of the elders here. And I'm also the director of Antioch's apologetics ministry known as Acts 17. Uh, and, and that gives me opportunity to advertise my course at Kilns College this fall, which will be in advanced apologetics beginning uh, a week from Wednesday night five to seven at Kilns College. Um, so if you're interested in being one who has the, the resources and the information and the, and the tactics for responding to many of the claims and charges that come against Christianity in our day and culture, then I'd encourage you to, to come to that class. Um, I've been involved with a lot of colleges, uh, and I've never found one where registration for a college class was as easy as it is for you. So check a box, put your name on that thing that's in your bulletin, and, and drop it in the offering bucket if you want to sign up for any of those four classes. Um, with that, I'm going to read the scripture that I'm tasked with uh, teaching this morning, and then I'll, I'll say a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right in. 1 Peter 5, beginning with verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we just give you this, these next few minutes. We are mindful of uh, the fact that we can come and, and consider your word openly in public uh, without fear of persecution, unlike those in the early church to whom Peter first wrote these words. And we would just uh, lift up to you our brothers and sisters throughout the world today who, who do face persecution when they, when they worship you. We pray that we would not take our freedoms for granted, and we just ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us into truth in the next few minutes. Uh, to your glory, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Um, I'm going to take a little different approach here this morning, and that is um, I'm going to take an apologetics approach. I'm not going to assume that each and every one of you uh, accepts the Bible as the Word of God. In fact, I'm going to assume that there's some of you out there who doubt the credibility of what we call Scripture, and, and maybe because of the sorts of things that this passage discusses. 
there's probably somebody out there who believes that modern science has somehow disproved the existence of devils, as this passage uh, claims. More likely, there's somebody out there who is struggling to reconcile based on the suffering they see in the world around them or, or perhaps the suffering that they're going through personally. Um, this portrayal that the Bible has of God as all-powerful and as all-loving. And so rather than just preach, believe this because the Bible says so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to argue that, that both logic, reasoning, and, and scientific evidence support the Bible's uh, claims in these regards. Um, and first of all, I want to begin with this whole idea of the devil. Uh, there are some, certainly in our culture, who suppose that uh, the existence of spiritual beings, and particularly someone like the devil, has been disproved in our, in our modern society. Surely the folks at Antioch don't still believe in, in the devil, do they? Um, let me start with a, a quote by C.S. Lewis. This was in the, the preface to his Screwtape Letters in which he says, The existence of demons seems to me to explain a good many facts. It agrees with the plain sense of Scripture, the tradition of Christendom, and the belief of most men at most times. And it conflicts with nothing that any of the sciences has shown to be true. Now, as I said, I'm not going to spend too much time talking about the plain sense of Scripture or the tradition of Christendom. Uh, I'm a biologist myself and also a student of the history and philosophy of science. And so I'm going to key in on on the science in this regard. Um, I could provide direct scientific evidence of the existence of demons. And and in fact, I'll promise to do that in my blog later this week if if you want to go there. But the approach I want to take right now is this, to suggest that the existence of Satan like the existence of God, is just part and parcel of a larger issue. And that issue would be, which of these views is the more accurate understanding of the world in which we live? Is it materialism? And that would be the view that uh, the universe consists of nothing but the material or the physical, that there is no non-physical or spiritual component to the universe, Or is some form of dualism more accurate? Is there a non-physical, maybe a spiritual component to the world in which we live? And as C.S. Lewis seemed to imply there, the latter view, that there is more than just the physical, has been the default view throughout human history. And the materialist view is a a rather recent one. And it's really just um, some of the elites in modern science who adopt that view and and some of their cohorts in the media. But I want to assure you that uh, those who adopt a materialist view do not do so on the basis of any scientific evidence or even on the basis of good reasoning. And and I want to uh, identify at least a couple of logical fallacies, errors in thinking that, uh, that are involved in materialist thinking. And and the first one is a reductive fallacy. That is the fallacy of reducing something to one simple component of of it rather than treating the whole complex thing. Um, In fact, there's a very specific form of reductive fallacy known as the nothing-buttery fallacy. 
And so, for instance, uh, neurophysiologists who study uh, the brain, um, well, let's, let's take memory, for instance. Um, we all have memories that we take to be real. And a, and a neurophysiologist can, can discover a portion of the brain that is innervated, that is active, when a person is uh, recollecting something, uh, dredging up memories. And so the nothing, but, the nothing buttery fallacy would be to say, because I can identify a portion of the brain that's involved there, I can jump to the conclusion that there's nothing but brain involved there. And so uh, a materialist scientist would, would explain everything, thoughts, ideas, emotions, uh, desires, memories, as being nothing but biochemical responses uh, to the firing of neurons in your brain. Uh, and that's a fallacy. That's a reductive fallacy. Most philosophers could point out good reasoning that would, show, would demonstrate that that's a fallacy. Um, I have a very vivid memory of a, uh, a full-length pass and a turnaround jump shot that resulted in Dukes going on to the final four and Kentucky being eliminated from the regional finals back in 1992. And I, and I have a memory not only of the, the pass and the shot, but also of my own joyful response to it, which incidentally permanently traumatized my oldest son, Nathan, who was under a year old at the time. But we, can, we cannot talk about that memory in the same way we talk about physical things. My memory, though real, uh, does not have weight or dimensionality or electrical charge, color, pH, any of those things. And so it's in a non-physical category. And we could discuss hundreds of thousands of things like that that are in our universe that are real that are non-physical. And the, the choice of talking about this area of, of consciousness and brain physiology is a good one because it's one of the rare scientific fields in which many of the leading experts, beginning with a materialist view of their field, have nonetheless allowed the evidence to convince them that the materialist view is wrong. For the most part, materialist scientists do not uh, allow the evidence to, to talk them out of their presupposition. So when a, when a materialist science begins by adopting that metaphysical view, that religious view, if you will, that there is nothing but the physical, and then el eliminates from consideration any spiritual component to, to the explanation for what they're studying, and then turns around and claims that they've somehow supported their metaphysical view through their experiments, they're engaged in nothing but a self-deceptive exercise in circular reasoning. The fact of the matter is that all science, including especially the, the most important discoveries of the last 50 or 100 years, undermines a materialist view and supports a specifically biblical view, that view that includes the creation of free will beings, angels, some of whom are fallen, and who, through the exercise of their free will, have actualized evil in our universe. Um, the latest discoveries support not only a dualist view, but specifically the biblical view. 
It doesn't support the, the polytheism of the ancient Greeks and Romans who believed in many gods of varying degrees of good and evil. It doesn't support the, the sort of Star Wars theology of many of your neighbors in which God is some sort of cosmic force that we can all tap into and, and in which the, the line distinguishing between the dark side and the good side is, is a fairly blurred thing. All of, this, all of the evidence of science support a specifically biblical view of the world in which we live. And I'm talking especially about the, the discovery, what, what most scientists would call the greatest discovery of the last century, that the universe had a beginning. Uh, that was not one of the assumptions of Darwinism or, or its materialistic corollaries. Uh, but the Bible has been proclaiming that for 5,000 years. Uh, astrophysicists have, have uncovered hundreds of characteristics of the universe, the galaxy, the solar system, that show fine design, very, uh, very specific design that life of our kind might be possible, again, supporting a biblical view. And I could go on and on listing fields like biochemistry and genomics and, and genetics and, and brain neurophysiology and that sort of thing, which support a specifically biblical view of the world in which we live, complete with the devil and, and other free will creatures like us. So having... Uh, Having argued that the existence of demons is, is a reasonable thing, uh, let me just point out two errors into which Christians tend to fall in regards to the devil. And the first one is to ignore or deny the existence of the devil or to not consider him a player in our lives. And that's the error specifically addressed here by Peter. We are to be watchful. We are to be alert because... There's some interrelationship between the devil and our suffering, and we'll, we'll get to that relationship in a minute. But the converse, the opposite error into which Christians fall, uh, would be to give the devil credit for much more than he's really responsible for. Um, for one thing, the biblical portrayal is that the devil is not like God, present everywhere at once, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful. So unless we're doing a pretty powerful work for the kingdom of God, neither Satan himself nor the demons in league with him would, would need to turn their attention to us in a world of 7 billion people. Um, but more importantly, when we give Satan credit for everything, you know, there, there's folks who say, you know, I, I heard that you locked your keys in the car before Bible study last Tuesday. That was a visitation of Satan in your life. Um, you know, he caused my computer to crash last month. Um, it also takes away from ourselves blame and responsibility that is rightfully ours. Scripture says that there are at least three areas that keep us from living the abundant life to which we are called, uh, summarized by the words, the world, the flesh, and the devil. So if, if we are so conformed to the world that, that we're in no way separated, set apart for, for God's kingdom, or if we're so entangled in fleshly habits and, and sinful practices that, that we just can't experience the joy of obedience to Christ, then neither Satan nor his demons need turn their attention upon us. Uh, except for our future salvation, their goals for our lives are already a, a fait accompli. Um, at home, when I use a French phrase, my, my other son Jasper chimes in, parlez-vous français? 
He thinks he's cute. Uh, um, but what I want to look at next is, is this juxtaposition in verses 9 and 10 of the concepts of the devil and suffering. What is the contextual link between those two? And one option, the option given by the editors of my study Bible, is that, that Peter is here just telling these first, first century suffering Christians that the reason for their suffering is ultimately because of the devil. And I, I don't think that's the right explanation here, and that, that for a couple of reasons. The whole purpose of this letter is to comfort and encourage these first, first century Christians that are confused and undergoing persecution and suffering. And frankly, I don't believe that being told that the reason you're suffering is because there's this powerful unseen enemy who's got you in his crosshairs is very encouraging. I think the reason for, for this introduction of Satan, remember the, the context of the whole letter is suffering, and Satan is the, the new thought here. I think the reason is to say that, oh, by the way, another ramification of this suffering you're going through is that Satan is going to use your suffering as an opportunity to try to turn you away from your only source of hope and comfort. Um, the metaphor here is of a prowling lion. Uh, a lion doesn't take down a healthy, strong wildebeest or zebra with impunity. Rather, he looks through the herd looking for the lame or the weak beast that he can take down. In the same way, when we're caught up in suffering, our enemy is going to use that as an opportunity for temptation and come alongside of us and say, you know, where do you think God is in, in the suffering you're going through now? Um, you know, maybe he, maybe he doesn't care. He doesn't seem to be answering your prayers. Maybe, maybe he does care, but he's powerless to do anything about it. Or, or maybe he's just a figment of your imagination. And so these are the sorts of things that Satan's going to come along and, and offer us in the midst of our suffering. And that's a segue right into to the last big point I want to make, which is, is this whole problem of, of suffering and evil. It's, it's great to hear that, that Pastor Ken's going to talk about it for a couple of weeks because it's a, it's a complex issue that I won't be able to resolve for you today. Um, again, if you want to sign up for my apologetics class, we'll spend two or three weeks there talking about this issue as well. But as an apologist, I interact with all of the different uh, charges made against Christianity in our culture. Um, we don't have the original Gospels, so we don't really know what Jesus said and did. Um, miracles don't happen, and so neither did the resurrection. Why should we believe in that? Or um, all religions lead to God, so, so why are you Christians claiming to have uh, truth in this matter? All those sorts of things. And, and every one of them involves bad reasoning, failure to interact with all of the relevant evidence, um, insincerity, dishonesty, disingenuity, or, or all of the above. In my opinion, the one exception is this problem of evil and suffering. Uh, the person who raises the issue of how can I reconcile either the, the suffering out there in the world or the personal suffering with which I'm uh, intimately familiar with the Bible's portrayal of God as all good and all powerful to me, this is a legitimate objection to Christianity. 
and, and is generally raised with honesty and sincerity. Now, I believe that Christianity has an adequate response to that. In fact, I believe that Christianity has the only adequate response to that. Again, I can't get there today. It's an issue that requires sensitivity, patience, and, and reasoning down a whole series of, of argument lines. But what I want to say today with regard to verse 10 here is that the promise we have here is a key component of that satisfactory Christian answer. What we have here is God promising through Peter that no matter what suffering we might be going through now, God has promised to make it light in comparison to the glory and joy that he has for us in a future eternity. Now, I'm not undergoing a great deal of suffering right now, and, and the last thing I want to do is, is make light of or diminish the suffering with which you might be familiar. I know that such a promise takes a lot of faith, takes a lot of trust, a lot of believing. But all I can say at this point is that it's perfectly reasonable to believe this promise. We have this promise elsewhere in the New Testament, especially in Romans 8.18 and 2 Corinthians 4.17, but other places as well. What I want to say here in, in conclusion to you today, despite whatever degree or, or duration of suffering you're familiar with, it may be a chronic disease of somebody you're close to that's lasted their entire life or a disability that you just can't imagine God having any way of, of mitigating against or, or overwhelming or compensating for that sort of suffering. Nonetheless, it, it's perfectly logical and reasonable, reasonable to believe this promise. In other words, if the God portrayed in the Bible as the creator of all things, outside of but acting within this universe, all loving and all powerful, if that God portrayed that way in the Bible and also attested to by all scientific knowledge is real, then it's reasonable to think that he can fulfill this promise. It's also reasonable to think that as long as we are finite creatures trapped in, in the three dimensions of space and the single line, half line of time that we are, that we won't fully understand how he can do that, how he can make good on that promise. But it's perfectly rational to believe this promise. If you're going through suffering... I'd, I'd urge you to camp there. If you're not going through suffering, the best way to prepare for it is to make this, these kinds of promises that Scripture gives us a part of who you are so that when you're in the suffering, you'll have reasoned through it already and you won't be susceptible to those temptations of the enemy. As I consider this promise, I, I come to the same welling up of praise that I think is what resulted when Peter first wrote this in, in verse 11 here. Verse 11 is a doxology that, that I think was just a spontaneous response of Peter to considering the promise that he recorded in, verse 10, in what we call verse 10. What he's saying here in verse 11 is simply this. If, if God can do that, if this God, this Yahweh, this Christ can do that, can make our current suffering seem as nothing by what he's promised us in eternity, then let him have dominion. Let him be the guy in charge 
forever and ever. Amen. Thanks for listening. Well, I have the second half of the Nunchuck, and I am really short on time. I have supposed to have, I'm supposed to be done now. So, <laughs> technically speaking, I'm done. So, see you. <laughs> so, I have like 10 minutes. And anyone who knows me and how I teach, 10 minutes is, this is going to be impressive. Because that will be like a first ever for me. If you don't know him. My name is Aaron Wells. Um, I'm one of the River Rockers who transplanted here with Brandon. I was his assistant pastor there. Before that, I worked in California at a church. And then before that, I was in Corvallis. I played football and um, so on and so forth. So that's my excuse for my size. So it's pretty sweet. That's why I'm who I am. It's awesome. <laughs> I don't have to make excuses. I have my wife works in Pitter Patter. It's Emily. And then I have two kids. So if you want to open your Bibles back up to 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm going to be finishing off the book. Um, with verses 12 and 13, and I'll read those. It says, By Silvanus, this could also, is most likely Silas, who was with Paul on his second missionary journey. It says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And, it, you know, I'm just going to try and finish this quick, so I'll just go into it. It says here, or Peter speaking here, and if you remember, it's been a long time since we've talked about the whole book, so quickly remember that this book was written to Jewish Christians who had been dispersed, right? They had left Jerusalem, they had been moved out of the area of Palestine quickly, and they're now living throughout. And if you know anything about Jews, you know that technically, you know, the temple was everything for them. It was their source of fellowship and friendship. It was church then, like we have here, was the temple. But because they were Jews and they were Christian Jews, they could no longer go there. So they don't really have a home. They're very, you know, they, they don't have a place of meeting. And so this was written to them specifically and then to us as Christians along those same lines. And he says that, you know, my encouragement to you is this, is that this is not your home. That was in the first chapter. We'll go there in a second. But he says, hey, I want to encourage you guys by saying this is not your home. And everything I'm going to tell you from this point on needs to be viewed through those binoculars or goggles, whatever you use, you know, I don't know, telescope. You pick your thing. But he says, you know, this is what I want to do is I want you to look through this lens. I want you to see, you know, I have a pair of sunglasses that are like orange and Beavers, Oregon State, you know, orange and black. <laughs> I went there. That's right. I'm like a diehard now. Um, but, you know, it's like to those orange glasses. And when you put sunglasses on, you're like the world changes. It goes from whatever. And orange is like a happy color. So if, you're from, if you need sunlight, you put on orange sunglasses. It's like, oh, it's so nice. You take them off, and that's not really nice. But you put them on, you're all happy. So he says, I want to encourage you. I want you to look at your life through these sunglasses. And these sunglasses are going to be comprised of two things, suffering and grace. And how the grace of God is sufficient to meet your suffering. And the whole book is comprised of that, as we just heard from Rick a minute ago. Is that the, the grace of God is sufficient to meet that. In Ironside, um, a Bible commentator says this. He says, Paul writes of our standing in grace before God, whereas Peter testifies to the power of grace, which enables us to stand in the hour of trial, neither giving place to the devil nor disheartened by suffering and persecution. So Ironside pointed out something different. You know, we talk about grace, and you know, Jesus Christ died for us. That's his grace and whatnot, and how that covers our sins and how that saves us from sin. But on the other side of that, we see that this grace is also gives us like a power, a sufficiency, if, if you want to use that word, to, to maintain as Christians. And if you're not Christian in the audience, you may not understand that. But to those of you who are saved, who do have a relationship with Jesus Christ, Peter's very specific here to these Jewish Christians, and he's very specific to us. He says, guys... I want to remind you of something. And it's funny, you know, it's talking about suffering. Like, I don't know that I've ever really suffered. 
I've had hard times in life. I've had two premature children. Both my girls were born. One was 29 weeks and one was 30 weeks. The first one was in the hospital for two and a half months. The second was in the hospital for two and a half months. And the second one almost died. So, but the, the funny thing to me is, like, to me, I was like, oh, it stinks. You know, I didn't get to have, like, the new baby cut the cord experience. Like, someone was standing there, I'm like, dude, what is that like? Cut the cord, you know? What's that about? It's kind of sounds cool. I never did that. Anyhow, like, to me, that wasn't suffering. To me, that was, like, a tough time. You know, I've been, like, without cash and done that whole deal, you know. But, so I don't know. It's hard for me when they say suffering in America. To me, it's like, well, how do we experience that? So you pick whatever you want to call suffering, and you've pictured that. And, and Peter says... The grace of Jesus Christ is enough to meet that need. Okay? And not, and not like you're, well, I mean, maybe like you're thinking, but the grace of Jesus Christ is enough to meet that. So quickly I want to read, because I think he's kind of bringing them back to the very beginning of the chapter, where he says in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. So think now, Christians, you have been born again. Okay, everyone here is older than 12, I think. So you've all been born. And you can not think of your birth, so that's great. Because that'd be kind of odd if you thought, you know, out of the womb. You could remember that, you'd be really strange. And I don't know why I just said that, but it came to mind. So, (laughs) um, you have been born again. So, erase everything that happened before you were saved, before you accepted Jesus Christ. Because from that point forward, you have been given a brand new birth. You are not you anymore. You are like, if you were given a name, it would be like Aaron Wells, Jesus Christ. Because I am now the son of a new father. He has given birth to me in a special way, so I am no longer me. I am new. So think about that for a second. He says, you have been born again to a living hope. Not to anything, but to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the, be- from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for for you. So this, this inheritance that you have waiting for you, the whole reason you have been born is not for here. So, you know, all your nice, you know, I'm wearing Lucky Brand pants today. That's a first for me because they they cost like big money. But if you go to Costco, they don't cost big money. So (laughs) Costco shopper. Anyhow. You know, it's like, so you have everything here. You have the nice clothes. You have a nice car. You have a a house to live in or an apartment or a shack. I don't know where you live, so it's possible you could live in a shack. But you have all these things here. But he says you were not born again for those things. You were born specifically only for one thing. You were born for one thing, and that's for your inheritance. Jesus Christ didn't save you so you could have the nicest things. He didn't save you so you could live here and and have these different things. He saved you because he wanted to give you something. He wanted to give you a gift, and that gift was an inheritance that is unperishable. It's It's not going away. It's undefiled. It's completely clean, and it's unfading. It's being kept for you right now from the moment you were saved till now. It's still there. It's it's this place in heaven. And not only is it being kept, but look who's keeping it for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So by God's power, you are being guarded now for that salvation, for that faith in heaven or that place in heaven. God is guarding you and preparing you and keeping you and protecting you and making you ready for that place. 
Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So get this. The whole reason a Christian is alive is to persevere for heaven. I realize that's something you hear all the time, but I'll say it again just because maybe it was shocking to me, and I'm teaching, so I could say it. The whole reason you were saved is to persevere through this time to get to heaven. It's not about the now. It's not about your, and this is me talking, so understand I haven't figured it out, and that when I say things, I say things going through my own life, so maybe you really have, but I'm saying of myself, I have not experienced true suffering. And it's interesting that Rick said, you know, people say, well, the whole problem with the world is why is there suffering and death? Why are people dying in different countries? I can, raise, I can think on one hand in the past nine days that I've thought of anyone else in the world besides myself and my family. So be realistic. What we care about is ourselves. What we want to think about is ourselves. And there may be some of you who are different, but for the majority of people sitting here, what you care about is your life and what is happening with you. And because that's what you think, maybe we should turn our gaze away from what is going on with us and remember that the whole reason we're here is for heaven. The whole reason we live here, the whole reason we were created is to persevere through what's been given us now so that we can reach the end. And if we want to experience the grace of God, as Peter says is there for us, he says this is the grace of God, is that Jesus Christ has died for your sins to give you the power to make it there. And so that is why it's not necessarily a mystery. It's not a surprising thing. Jesus knew it was going to happen. God knew it wasn't. It's not like, you know, God was like, oh, my gosh. Can you believe that? What am I going to do? Hold on a second. Let me. Do you got page three of the manual? Because I I don't think this is in there anywhere. Do you think God's surprised? I mean, do you really think he like opens up a book in heaven and is like, oh, no. Oh, you mean they're suffering? Gosh, hold on. Let's hold a prayer meeting here for them. You know, it's not like that. God knew. Peter knew. Every Christian should know. That's just par for the course. I'm a horrible golfer horrible. And I know every time I go out that I'm not going to get a birdie. I've had one in my life. I know that though. I mean, I've accepted that about my game, if you can call it that. But I know that. And in the same way, there's things we should expect as Christians, and that is one of them, that you will experience suffering or you will experience trials. But the grace of God is this, is that even though you experience that, he has given you something to rejoice in in the midst of it. So he's not necessarily saying that, you know, oh, you know, you should always be happy and you should always love what you're doing. And, you know, if your whole family's dead, it's okay. You know, he's not necessarily saying that. He said that's going to happen. But you will always, always, always be able to rejoice in something. And that is this is but a short time. Your 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years here on earth is, is, is like a grain of sugar in the, in the bag. You know, I just, I made a cake for my sister this week, and you get this huge bag of sugar. It's like a grain will be your life compared to what, what is waiting for you in heaven. 
And as he finishes the book, he says that. He says, this is the true grace of God, and I want you to stand firm in it. Christians, hear me today. Peter closes this book by reminding them that they are to stand firm in the grace of God. That they are to be able to handle. You are not to fail. You're not, that's not supposed to be the Christian. Christians should be above that because we have a grace to look forward to. You are not supposed to go that route. Get that point. Peter's talking to these guys saying, what you are experiencing is real. I understand it hurts. I understand it's disappointing. I understand you have bad days, but don't fail. Don't quit. Stand firm in it. And then he continues, she who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. And it's cool, you never have to stand alone. Look how Peter finishes the book. Peace to all who are in Christ. You have a special relationship now that you're in Christ. You're no longer by yourself. You are part of a brotherhood. And church, that is what we should be about. If you look at Peter's writings, Paul's, James, you look at all these guys, they speak to the church as one unit working together towards the end of their salvation, their faith. So you always have someone to walk with. Now, I'm a minute over my time that I was supposed to finish at, so I'm done. But I want to leave you with one verse. It says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Prepare yourselves. Don't, if you're not in a time of suffering now, don't live in such a way where it's like, oh, you know, I'll take care of it when it happens. Paul says, be prepared. When we go to work, when you get up for your, I don't know about you, but my kids, I have to be prepared for the day with them because they are like, go, go, go. But be prepared. Don't live lightly. That's what it takes to, to, to get past this whole thing of suffering is to be prepared for when it comes by living in such a way where you expect heaven to come, where it's on your thoughts, where those bad days you think, you know, it's a really crappy day today, but, you know, I could go to heaven, so who cares? I mean, really, that's a great thought. (laughs) So we're going to close with some worship.